Father, we ask that you would speak to us now from your word and show us who we are and show us the power of your righteousness and cause us to be those who have experienced you creating within us a clean heart, those for whom you have restored the joy of your salvation. And Lord, grant us the gladness of teaching sinners your way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you turn in your Bible this morning to Psalm 51, which I would invite you to do, I would invite you also to imagine in your mind Cinderella. Maybe you saw the recent movie. I actually haven't seen the movie, but, you know, we all know the story. And uh, imagine this gloriously beautiful young lady who has been liberated from a situation where she was enslaved, and she has been clothed with this magnificent gown, and these glass slippers have been put on her feet, and she is on her way to this ball, and she knows, let's just do in this story, that she knows that the prince is going to fall in love with her and that she is going to marry the prince. So she's been liberated, she's been clothed, and now she's on her way to meet her beloved. And, and I would invite you to think for a moment about the marriage relationship and what it entails. It, it involves a covenant between a man and a woman which um, forges these relationships and grants to each these roles and, and uh, you know, in, in the Bible's world and in more traditional settings, uh, the Bible teaches, I think, that the man's responsibility is to protect his wife and to provide for her and to lead her, and then the wife's responsibility is to help and, and be a blessing in all the ways that she can be. Well, imagine that on the way to going into this kind of relationship with a prince who's a gentleman, Cinderella decides that she'll enjoy some of the, the benefits and the relationships and the intimacies and the, the kinds of interactions that a woman has with her husband with some other men on the way to the ball. And what she finds is that these other men are not gentlemen and that these relationships are not covenantal. And on the way to the ball... Because of what she did, her gown is ripped and her face is bruised and her lip is cut and her glass slippers are shattered. And she realizes that not only is she externally defiled, she's inwardly defiled through what she's done. As we look at Psalm 51, we have a situation like this where David has been exalted from the ash heap to be the king over God's people, Israel. And David decided that rather than find his satisfaction and joy in his relationship with his father and be satisfied in God, he would seek that kind of relational intimacy and satisfaction in other ways. And it leaves him, like Cinderella, defiled and broken. And this is what we read in response to that situation. 
as we as we make our way through Psalm 51, I'm going to break this into three parts. Uh, verses 1 through 4, David is crying out to the Lord, have mercy. And then in verses 5 through 13, he's pleading with the Lord, basically saying, fix me. Uh, I've messed myself up and I need you to make me right. And then in verses 14 through 19, he's, he's telling the Lord that if the Lord will do this, if he'll have mercy on him and fix him, God will get glory from this. So we'll approach the psalm in these three sections. Uh, but let's back up for just a moment and think about it in the context of Psalm 50. We saw last week that Psalm 50 announces God coming in terrible judgment. And, and I think there's a, a logical connection between Psalm 50 and 51 because the announcement that God is coming to, to judge the earth. Look at Psalm 50 verse 4. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. So God is coming in judgment and what that does is it crushes David's rebellion and puts him on his knees in Psalm 51, crying out for mercy from the one whose righteousness his sin has offended. As we go through this psalm, we're going to see that it's a, it's a concentrically structured psalm. There's a kind of ring structure to it. Paul, I'll go ahead and say it's a chiasm. And uh, so the first uh, statements correspond to the last, and I'll draw attention to this as we, as we go through. Look with me at the superscription here to Psalm 51. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Uh, so this is David's response. We, Denny read this passage earlier. This is David's response when he's been convicted of his sin. So he went into Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet comes to him. So the sin has become public. And at the end of the psalm, in verses 18 and 19, the public uh, ramifications of David's repentance are going to be addressed. So there's a, there's a correspondence between the beginning and the end. And then in verse 1, look at what David says here in Psalm 51.1. He says, have mercy on me, O God. That's the way the ESV renders it. But they've got a footnote on the word me there, and down in the lower margin it says, or be gracious to me. I think that's actually a better rendering. Be gracious to me, O God. So that's his first plea. His second plea is at the end of verse 1, where he says, blot out my transgressions. And then David appeals, in between these two pleas, he appeals to something in God as the basis for these requests. In other words, David is not saying to the Lord, you ought to be gracious to me and blot out my transgressions because of my inherent worth, because I'm your king, because I killed Goliath. No, this, this is not based, these appeals are not based on anything about David's worth or David's effort. He's not saying, look at me, I'm the blessed man meditating on the Torah. You ought to be gracious to me for this reason. No. No, David knows. This is astonishing. David knows God's character. And one of the reasons I think it, it ought to be rendered, be gracious to me, O God, is because there is a cluster of terms in this first verse that come right out of what God said about himself in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Exodus 34, 6, and 7, the Lord passed before Moses and he said that he was a, a, a merciful and gracious God, abounding in loving kindness and truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So David says, be gracious to me, O God. That's one of the terms in Exodus 34, 6. 
according to your steadfast love. Another one of those words. So David is saying, God, I'm not asking you for grace because of who I am or because of what I've done. I'm asking you for grace because of who you are. According to your steadfast love, be gracious to me. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So I think we can say in, in verse 1 that David has, is basically asking for two things, and these things are going to be developed all through this psalm. First, he's asking for forgiveness. I think that's what's in the appeal, be gracious to me. Forgive me for my sin. Don't punish me in accordance with what I deserve. And then secondly, he's asking for cleansing. Blot out my transgressions. So it would be like Cinderella saying to the prince, don't treat me the way I deserve to be treated. And then all this stuff that defiles me, make it go away. That's what the Lord is saying. That's what David is saying to the Lord. And then he continues to develop this idea of cleansing there in verse 2. And he's, just as he's used Exodus 34, 6, and 7, one of the remarkable things about this psalm is how biblical this is. David is appealing to what God said about himself in Exodus 34, 6. Now he's going to appeal in verse 2 to the book of Leviticus because the words here, wash me and cleanse me, these are terms very frequently used in the book of Leviticus to describe the way that Israel could achieve ritual purity through the sacrifices and through the cleansings that were described there in the book of Leviticus. And, and David is saying to God, I need you to do this for me. You wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice that David is not in any way dodging responsibility here. There's not some, you know, roundabout way of saying, can you clean up what has happened? No, it's wash me from my iniquity. This is my problem. I did this. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. We're all sinners. We are all in the place of Cinderella. And if we want the Lord to clean us up, we've got to take responsibility. Both before him and with one another. So, so we should learn from the Bible how to apologize and how to cry out for mercy. When you go to apologize, don't, don't be abstract and general like you know, some things happened, and I regret those things, and hope we can go forward amicably here. No, be direct. I wronged you. I disrespected you. I transgressed against you, and I'm asking your forgiveness. Uh, David explains in verses 3 and 4 that the, the, this psalm largely is going to go in these two verse uh, segments. So verses 1 and 2 are kind of a segment. Verses 3 and 4 are a segment. David says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now think about this. Uh, David says he knows his transgressions and his sin is ever before me. He did marry that guy's wife. You know, her presence, Bathsheba's presence with David would be a constant. Once he's been convicted, once he's repented, Every time he sees her, it's a reminder of what he did. Maybe you've read the play Hamlet, and you, you, you know from that play the way that Hamlet's uncle, after 
Hamlet's uncle has murdered Hamlet's father, and he's married Gertrude, Hamlet's mother. And Hamlet's, Hamlet's uncle tries to repent, and he gets on his knees, and he says, I would repent of this, but repenting of it would, be, would mean repenting of the kingdom that I now enjoy because I murdered my brother. And it would mean repenting of the wife that I now enjoy, my brother's wife, whom I'm now married to. And he says, I can't repent of those things. How can I repent of the sin if I can't repent of enjoying the fruits of the sin? And David is saying here, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. David is painfully aware, and I think when he says, I know my transgressions, it doesn't just include these particular sins that are in view, but, but probably the, the exposure of those things has brought to light sins large and small, impulses, inclinations, things that he contemplates, things that he catches himself wandering into. He's painfully aware of his sinfulness. Now, when he says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's not denying that he sinned against Bathsheba. He's not denying that he sinned against Uriah or anybody else that was harmed uh, through what, what happened. What he's saying, it, it, it's like, it would be in, in the analogy that we're develop, developing here, it would be like Cinderella recognizing the most significant person against whom I've transgressed here is the prince. That's the person with whom I was to enter into covenant. That's the person who was to protect and provide for me. That's the person with whom I was to be intimate. And when I went off and defiled myself by seeking that kind of relationship with all these other men that weren't my husband, I mainly sinned against him. I sinned against myself. I defiled myself. I sinned against other people in all kinds of ways. But the main problem is the way that I disregarded and offended him. So David is confessing that his sin was a personal affront to Yahweh because it was Yahweh with whom David was in covenant. And it was Yahweh's commands that David transgressed. And what David says here corresponds in a, in a couple of significant ways to what we saw in, in 2 Samuel 12. In that passage that, that Denny read when Nathan the prophet goes to David, he says to David, you have despised my word. Okay? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Murder. You've despised. And then he goes on to say, the Lord goes on to say, you have despised me. And this is, I think, prompting David saying, against you, you only have I sinned. And then in the previous chapter in 2 Samuel 11, when, when Joab um, sends word to David that Uriah is dead, um, the ESV renders David's reply, this key line in David's reply, it's rendered, uh, do not let this thing displease you. And literally what the text says is, do not let this be evil in your eyes. So David is saying to Joab, Okay, I know we just brought about the murder of Uriah, but don't let this thing, don't let this be evil in your eyes. Don't, don't be bothered by this. And then the, the author of Samuel says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And look at what David says right here in Psalm 51.4. Against you, you only have I sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight. And then he goes on, so that you may be justified in your words. We could render this, so that you may be righteous in what you say and blameless in your judgment. What what David is saying here is that because of what he has done, when the Lord brings justice against him, there will be no excuses. There will be no counter-arguments. David is guilty, and God's justice is going to be righteously applied. God is pure in his judgment. He is holy in his wrath, and he is justified in every word of condemnation he speaks. But praise God, the story doesn't end there. Praise God, the story of the Bible is not Adam sinned against the Lord, and the Lord obliterated Adam and Eve. That's not the way it goes. As David continues here in verses 5 and following, what we're going to see is is he's crying out for the Lord to fix him. He's crying out to the Lord to make him right. And, And what we'll see here is that this encounter with God's holiness has exposed the depths of David's problem. And, and these are depths that we should all contemplate. The, 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 the deep that David plunges into here is unparalleled outside the Bible. You get some statements like this in other places of the Bible, like Romans 5, but you don't get, you don't get analysis of what the human condition is like this outside the Scriptures, unless you're dealing with people writing about the Scriptures. Look at verse 5. David says... Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, notice how the beholds are linking verses 5 and 6 together. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret. What's David saying? David is saying something like this. God, what pleases you is truth and wisdom. And I was born in sin, conceived by sinners. How could truth and wisdom and obedience and holiness come from me given the fact that I descend from Adam? And this is true of every descendant of Adam. We were not, we were not placed innocent and sinless and fresh in a pristine world. Every one of us was born in sin, having been conceived by sinners, and we all live in a world pervaded by sin. How, then, are we to do what is holy? Well, David is not reciting the circumstances of his conception and birth to make excuses. I think what he's doing is making clear the need, right? If I was born in sin, and if everybody that that gave birth to me was born in sin, then I need something beyond the power of this world if I'm going to do what is holy. So this statement, verses 5 and 6, it really calls into question whether a human being can please God. But notice what David is not doing there in verse 6. You delight in truth. David is not revising down God's standard. Well, we'll just make it that if somebody tries really hard. We'll just make it that if somebody has good intentions. No. No, God's standard 
cannot be changed. Trying to revise down the requirement is like trying to to go home to the castle that you built in your imagination in the skies this afternoon. You know, it's just not going to happen. You're not going to get there. You're never going to be able to climb those steps up into the clouds. God's standard won't be changed, so people who would enjoy God's holiness must be. And that's what David uh, prays for in these following verses. He prays for God to do a work on him, a work of transformation that would result in him being someone who loves holiness and then acts on that love of holiness. So verse 7, again using language from Leviticus, David says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. If you do this, you can make me clean. This is like Cinderella saying to the prince, You can make me new again. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And then verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Bones that were justly broken. Sorrow that was experienced because of what David did. He's asking that to be replaced. And so... David is praying for the stains of the sin to be cleansed. And he recognizes in what he goes on to say here that if if these things are going to become reality, the inclinations of his own heart have to be redirected. But before we get there, look at verse 9. I think, as I said, the whole psalm comes in these two verse units except verse 9. Verse 9 stands alone as the very center point of this psalm. David says here, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Once again, there, I think there are two uh, requests here. Uh, the first request is for God to apply his almighty power to make it so that his omniscience, his all-knowing nature, is unaware of David's sin. David is asking God to make it so that his all-seeing eyes don't see his sin. This is a request for a complete forgiveness, a forgiveness with no remainder of wrath. Hide your face from my sins. Make it where you do not see it. Make it where it is gone. That's the first request. And then the second one has to do with the the consequences of David's sin. Blot out all my iniquities. The, The awareness of those iniquities would result in separation between God and David. And David is saying, make it where you don't see my sin and make it where those iniquities are no longer on the record. Blot them out. And if God will grant these two requests, David will be cleansed and forgiven and neither his actions nor his consequences will cause separation between himself and and the Lord. Now, let me, let me take you back into verse 8 and just reflect for a moment about this let me hear joy 
and gladness. Uh, and I just want to make the observation that there is a profound connection between our sin and our moods. Holiness really does make us happy. It really does. And sin spoils everything. And this cry from David that, that God would cause him to hear joy and gladness shows that he's experiencing the woes of the sorrow of sin. And, and the reference to the broken bones, this shows that God's heavy hand of discipline has come down on him, crushing him. But look at what the prayer reveals. The prayer reveals that David believes that if he will repent and if he will make this petition, God has such mercy that he can cleanse and heal and restore and make him happy again. This is a surprising prayer. It's a surprising prayer because this is not what we expect to hear about God's righteousness, is it? We expect to hear about God's righteousness that the holy standard is going to be upheld. But there are, there are new realities, I think, about God's righteousness that are surprising to human beings reflected in this psalm. David is praying that God would clean the, the stains and mend the dress and put the shattered slippers back together so that they're new. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Now, this word here for create, this is the word we know from Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the world. This is a, this is a word, this Hebrew word, bara. That this ver it's a verb, and the only subject of this verb ever in the Old Testament is God. David is asking God to do a new creation work on his heart. David is asking God to make him something that he did not previously have. David is saying, create in me a clean heart. I was born in sin. The people that conceived me were sinners. And I'm asking you for a new heart that is totally renovated. And as, as he makes this request, I think it's as though he's turning his attention from the past, his sin that needed to be cleansed, the iniquity that needed to be blotted out, and he's now looking to the future. And he's saying, okay, if you're going to forgive my sin, I'm going to need you to do something to me and in me that makes it so that I don't continue to do this kind of thing. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Give me you, you could translate this reference to a right spirit, something like an established spirit. Give me a spirit that is grounded and rooted and firm and that won't again give way. So he's asking for a new heart and a firm spirit, I think, because he wants to continue in willing obedience and holiness. And then in verse 11, David is asking that the Lord not do to him what the Lord did to Saul. If we were to go back and look at the narrative of Samuel, we would see that at various points, uh, several significant times, the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and he tells him to go do something. And Saul rebels. Saul just doesn't do it. And, and, and eventually the Lord says to Saul, Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has rejected you from being king and, and has sought out your neighbor who is better than you. And I think the... 
the, 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 the feature that makes David better than Saul is not that David was taller or stronger or more gifted or anything like that. I mean, Saul was, earlier in, in the narrative of Samuel, we read that there was none better in all Israel than Saul. And he was a head taller than everybody. He was really impressive. What makes David better than Saul is that he repented when he was confronted with his sin, which Saul never does. And, and when Samuel goes to anoint David, 1 Samuel 16 tells us, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit left Saul and came on David. So I think what David is talking about here when he says there in verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, he's saying, don't banish me and, and don't take away the anointing of, of me being king over your people. So I don't think he's talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit that we experience in the new covenant. I think he's saying, don't make the consequences of my transgression end my reign as king of Israel. So David is saying, please don't do to me what you did to Saul. Rather than being removed from his station as the Lord's anointed and the king of Israel, David wants to continue in God's presence. And in our analogy, I think this would be like Cinderella saying to the prince, I'd still like to marry you. I know what I've done. I know I know how things are, and I'd like for you to allow me to continue to the altar to be your bride. And if you think that that is an effrontery that requires a boldness and a disregard for all that's appropriate, you don't know what it is to be a Christian. Because that's where all of us are. We are all defiled harlots, spiritually speaking, and we come to the Lord Jesus saying, I'd still like to be part of your bride. I would still like for you on the last day to clothe me in fine white linen for the marriage feast of the Lamb. And the, the glorious good news of the scriptures is that people that come like that have their requests granted. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're not asking you to do something that's unpleasant. We're asking you to come to a God that is this forgiving, this gracious, this merciful, and make this kind of request that he might make you everything you've always wanted to be, that he might give you everything you've always wanted in the best way it can be given. That's what we're inviting you to as we invite you to faith in Jesus. Look at verse 12. Going, this, this corresponds uh, to verses 7 and 8. No, I'm sorry. Verses 12 and 13 correspond to verses 5 and 6. David says here in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, verse 13, I will treat, teach transgressors your ways. Verse 6, You delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God, if you'll restore me, I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners like me will return to you. The truth in which God delights and the wisdom that God teaches is going to be mediated through the restoration of David, the sinner. And think about how this has worked across the ages, thousands of years with untold numbers of people through Psalm 51. Think about how many people have learned God's ways through Psalm 51. This prayer has been granted. This prayer has been answered by the Lord. The Lord has 
restored to him the joy of salvation, upheld him with a willing spirit, and David is teaching transgressors his ways through the wisdom that God taught him through these horrific experiences. This is like Cinderella having her requests granted, and then for the rest of her life, she tells everybody how gracious and merciful and good the prince is. It's exactly what's going on here. So fix me, David prays in verses 5 through 13. And now verses 14 through 19, David is saying to the Lord, get glory from this. Verse, verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Blood guiltiness? Yeah. Uriah, dead. There's blood on David's hands. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm asking you to deliver me from that guilt. O God of my salvation. Now look at this remarkable statement. And, and, and work through this with me logically, right? David sinned. The law says thou shalt not murder. And the law explicitly states what the consequences are for those who do murder. So if God is going to do what is righteous, David has to experience the consequences. That's what people that don't know God think. People that know God know what he says about himself in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. They know that, yes, he is a God who does not clear the guilty... But they also know that he's gracious and merciful and that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And we ought to be up against it trying to figure out how that works. But look at what David says here in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Wait a minute. Righteousness was going to get you punished, David. If you deliver me, I'll proclaim your Righteousness. How does that work? Well, the God of the Bible is a God whose righteousness is surprising to us because it's, yes, a righteousness that upholds the standard of truth. It does not revise down the standard of God's holiness. That is upheld. God's holiness, his standard of truth and righteousness, that's upheld. But he forgives those who transgress but turn. Those who transgress but repent, those who transgress but rely on him for salvation, somehow God righteously declares them righteous. And Paul's going to later explain this, I think with these very statements and, and realities in mind. In Romans 3, 24 through 26, Paul explains how God put Christ forward as a sacrifice of propitiation because he needed to show himself to be righteous Because of the passing over of former sins. So sins like this, like what David did. God passed over them. He didn't punish them. And then to show that he is righteous, to uphold the standard of holiness, God sends Jesus to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies God's justice. This is the good news. So if you hear the good news of the sacrifice of propitiation made in Jesus then the announcement of God's righteousness is not bad news. It's not the way you'd feel if you got caught red-handed and you knew that you were guilty and you knew that the judge was unyielding. It's the way you feel when you come before God and you're pleading only the blood of Christ. And you love God's righteousness. You love God's holiness because it doesn't mean destruction for you. It means deliverance. 
My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. That corresponds back in verse 4 to the way that God is, is confess, uh, David is confessing God's righteousness, his justice in his judgment. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. If you experience this good news, your lips can't stay closed. And your lips will open and it will be God opening them. Because this almighty power will have been exercised on your behalf to make it where your sins aren't seen and your stains aren't there anymore and your heart is new and, and the Holy Spirit has not been removed from you but you're experiencing the joy of God's salvation and you will, you will teach sinners God's ways. You won't be able not to. In verses 16 and 17, we, we saw this back in, in verse of, of Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, verses 14 and following, where the psalmist is saying, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Here again, we get these statements about sacrifice, uh, where David is explaining that God, the God of the Bible is not a God that just likes to have bloody animals on his altar. That's not what God wants. What God wants is for people to try to obey and what God wants is for people to honor him and offer thanksgiving to him. And that can be expressed through those bloody animals on the altar. But if you've got the bloody animals and you don't have the desire for obedience and the thanksgiving and the honor for God, the bloody animal is useless. So, so David says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. David knows that what pleases God is repentance. Genuine, thorough repentance that is sorry because of the way that God has been hurt through what we've done. Uh, as I said, the, uh, the public ramifications of David's sin are then addressed at the end of the psalm in verses 18 and 19. You know, if, if David is restored and if David experiences God's favor, all Israel experiences God's restoring favor. If wrath falls on David because of his sin, wrath falls on all Israel. And, and David is acknowledging these realities where as the king of Israel, he's somehow the representative of God's people and he's saying to the Lord, Essentially, don't give us what I deserve. But rather, verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Don't make it so that an enemy, enemy army comes in your wrath and breaks down those walls. Then, if you'll do this, Lord, you, then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Consider what David is saying here. If you will forgive our sin, we will experience your character and we will respond to you in the way that you want us to respond to you. So David is saying, Lord, make your, yourself known to us in all your forgiving glory and receive our worship. Across the Testaments, Old Testament into the New, God's righteousness is a sheer precipice of holiness. And since Adam's fall into sin, that 
precipice has been this crushing force of judgment. But what we're seeing in this psalm is that in the mystery of God's mercy, God is pleased to show the power of his creativity and love and grace in the righteous forgiveness of the repentant guilty. The guilty repent and return to the Lord, and the Lord forgives, having put Christ forward as this sacrifice of propitiation. Which means that everybody that resonates with the message of Psalm 51, everybody that prays this prayer, and, and this, this psalm ought to teach us all how to pray, we're going to be the harlot Cinderella who defiled herself, ruined her dress, got her slippers shattered, but because of the king, because of the prince, because of his death and resurrection and conquest, on that last day we'll be clothed in fine white linen for the marriage feast of the Lamb. And the bride will be glorious, washed by the water of the word, without spot or stain or any other blemish. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are not a God who delights to crush sinners, but you are a, a God who delights to save sinners. It is altogether unexpected for us. And we pray that you would do for us what David articulates. Give us a, a clean heart. Create it new in us. Give us a willing spirit. Enable us to enjoy your presence. And make us those who teach sinners your way. Make us those who rightly represent how forgiving and loving and merciful and good you are. And we ask it for the glory of your great name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.